Open source projects benefit from the network effects of a large audience of developers. A popular open source project will be contributed to and used by thousands of developers who are continuously testing, deploying, and improving the software. The open source movement has created massive communities and a thriving, collaborative economy. Infrastructure software companies are increasingly built within an open source business model. Databases, queuing systems, orchestrators, operating systems, and search engines have been started as freely available open source projects and leveraged into billion-dollar businesses. In previous shows, we have talked about business strategy, go-to-market tactics, and licensing of infrastructure software. There remains plenty of room for more open source infrastructure companies. We still need better databases and distributed systems management. But over time, open source will move up the stack, from Netflix to Uber to Slack to social networks to payment systems. All software verticals will become open source, or will at least have open source alternatives to the closed source options we have today. And that's because the benefits of making your software open source often outweigh the costs. For many software business models, the competitive advantage is not found in the source code. It's in the data, or the network effects, or the sales strategy, or the brand. Therefore, it makes sense that someday the source code will be freely available, democratizing the infrastructure concerns and letting these software businesses move up the value chain and become less operationally intensive at the bottom of the stack. Rather than asking, why should we open source our code? These companies will be asking, why shouldn't we open source our code? Joseph Jacks is the founder of OSS Capital, a venture capital firm that invests exclusively in commercial open source software companies. Joe believes that over time, open source eats everything. In today's show, we talk about the future of open source businesses, the impact of licensing, cloud providers, and cryptocurrencies. I enjoyed talking to Joe, as I have in several past episodes, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Joseph Jacks, you are the founder of OSS Capital. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me on again, Jeff. We've been talking a lot lately about open source software and what you are doing with OSS Capital. The thesis of this new fund that you've built is that open source software eats everything. To some extent, this has already come true. We have lots of companies that are built on open source. Many of the infrastructure companies are selling versions of open source software. What are the areas of software that have not yet been eaten by open source? What's still proprietary? That is a really good question. I think broadly, much of the software stack, as far as the critical components of it, will be open source. By critical components, I mean things that are sort of data path oriented in the kind of computer science context data path, meaning where you're reading and writing data or where you're proxying data connections, bytes, packets between things, or you're doing transformation or data processing. And the answer is really, really hard to distill down to something concise because you're sort of asking, you know, what this sort of possible universe of things that could be open. And I think eventually kind of everything becomes open, but it's sort of a spectrum. It's not necessarily a binary, like literally everything down to embedded software, 
microcontroller sort of stuff all the way up to every last bit in application software. I think there are certain things that will take a lot longer to become open source software. Like what would take the longest for open source software to eat? If we think about all of the range of pieces of software we could have, we've got our iPhones, we've got our MacBooks. I would say along a continuum, and I've started to blog a little bit about this, I've just gotten quite insanely busy so i've kind of fallen off the off the, off the wagon and, and blogging weekly as i as i promised and i feel really bad about that but i will pick it back up i think consumer applications will probably take much longer than infrastructure software middleware SaaS applications line of business SaaS applications proprietary cloud computing service apis and their respective services Con- by consumer applications i literally mean things like uber snapchat the icons on your iPhone, right? I think those will take the longest because consumers are the uh, sort of end users, non-technical, like everyday people are are the consumers of those applications and they're least sensitive or sort of scrutinizing of how those software products, applications are constructed and delivered and built than say line of business enterprise applications that are sort of packaged, deployed, implemented, installed by more engineering sensitive and oriented people. And then infrastructure, middleware, sort of cloud distributed system stuff is much, much closer to engineers being sensitive to how how things are implemented and they highly regard and value transparency and looking at how things are implemented and how to optimize and improve things and so on. If you take a company like Uber today, Uber's value is mostly in the network that it's built. So Uber connects riders and drivers, and there's a massive moat around the data in their database. So it's not the software itself, it's the data that's sitting in their database. Why doesn't Uber open source everything in their software stack today? I think that the reason is they don't really have a compelling business case for that. So, and they don't have a compelling business case for that because their end users are just looking for a business outcome. They're not looking for, you know, something that they can customize and tailor to their own specific view of the world. It's a generic platform for delivering an outcome, getting you from point A to point B more efficiently with less friction and so on. I think that's kind of the top level answer. I do think eventually that changes though over time. Contrast that with Netflix. So Netflix open sources a variety of components of their software and they get to use that as producing leads for hiring. So some people, you know, contribute to Hystrix and that leads to that person getting hired by Netflix to come and work on Hystrix as an example. With Netflix, you could arguably say the same thing. Why don't they just open source everything? What would be the problem with open sourcing? Why selectively open source different pieces of the infrastructure? I think the answer to this right now is pretty speculative. And again, it's like my deep conviction. And I could be wrong about this, but I really believe eventually Netflix does open source everything. The reason they don't now is kind of going back to what you were saying. The value of their platform and service is in the network effect that has accrued around delivering 
a super differentiated and compelling user experience and outcome, which is, you know, you don't need to basically go to a, a movie theater or purchase a DVD or go through this crazy complex like selection process to find, you know, the next interesting movie to watch. You just click a couple buttons and you have this menu of recommendations and you can, you know, gain access to thousands of titles instantaneously and watch them on demand. And it's a user experience kind of service that doesn't justify kind of an open source delivery model because the primary end user of that service is not a software engineer or someone who wants to kind of deeply customize the the composition of that platform of that service to their specific needs from an implementation perspective that's my overall my overall take going back to like netflix oss i think the reasons obviously that netflix oss exists is to drive greater engineering recruiting kind of activity and obviously maybe contribute back to the open source ecosystem and build build a bunch of interesting reusable technology that shows netflix is on the cutting edge or innovating a lot in that in that area you know sort of tended to somewhat fall by the wayside and for a variety of reasons netflix oss tooling has somewhat stagnated recently i think mostly because it's highly java dependent and coupled to their particular infrastructure primitives and we've seen we've seen a lot of things kind of emerge that have replaced a lot of netflix oss specific projects that have sort of language neutral runtime neutral designs that have turned out to be more compelling i think to a broader set of engineers but i think it's actually kind of a mistake on that comment that you make around you know just improving recruiting overall as the main reason to do open source uh, sort of offices or kind of shared shared programs like the netflix oss program it goes much further than that i think open source as a strategy for large companies that are really important big technology companies like Netflix and Facebook and Twitter and Apple and so on are actually really, really strategic to those companies, but they haven't quite figured out why they're strategic or how they could be strategic. A couple other things to add here. So first of all, I think the reason that I hear cited the most about why a company does not open source software piece X is actually that it's it would be difficult to support so there would be you would have people who are coming in they're filing tickets or they're commenting on something and if you're Netflix you're like go away i just want to i'm working on some internal team at Netflix and now i've got random people on GitHub that are commenting on issues that are in my internal infrastructure go away you don't have enough context to understand why the issue has been raised in this manner. That's not really a commentary on the model of open sourcing. That's more a commentary on the communication medium around open source. And, you know, I've talking to Henry Zhu or talking to other these other people who have issues with kind of the open source management process, whether that's a product of GitHub or that's just a product of, of online commenting systems that we have today. But just that kind of is, is not a fundamental issue with the open sourcing. It's more the, uh, an issue of the community side of things. Um, the other issue that I hear sometimes is like, well, this will open up a security vulnerability, but that seems, you know, that seems again seems kind of dubious because a lot of these, you know, you could gradually open 
source your infrastructure. Uh, you could make the default to to open source infrastructure, but do it in a very gradual manner. And you already have some security reviews around your uh, around your infrastructure, so security seems like less of an issue, especially a company like Netflix. I mean, the the I guess there's vulnerabilities around user data, for example. But yeah, I think on you know the gains, the potential gains you have around hiring or also uh, just knowledge sharing. The idea that you know these companies are like doing write-ups of their infrastructure. They're doing blog posts. They want to come on Software Engineering Daily and talk about their infrastructure. Well, you know, you could just open source it and make it like an archaeological dig, make it like a business case study, and more people might take take an interest in these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think all those things are true, definitely. But going back to your question about what gets eaten the furthest out or the last, I don't think it's fair to ask the last because software is constantly evolving and we're going to have more and more software, not less. And so it's just going to be this continuous evolutionary continuum. I think what's clear, like empirically based on this data set that we have, the spreadsheet, the commercial open source software company index, the cozy index is that middleware infrastructure software is sort of the category that open source software has shown to grow and I guess, quote unquote, eat the most over the last decade. And this consists of things like databases and message queues and operating systems, obviously, and some some application level things, frameworks, middleware overall. And that's, uh, you know, data integration, application integration. So what we expect, because that's a pretty huge part of the software stack, in particular to enterprise IT and just the technology industry overall, this is multi-trillion dollar space infrastructure software will continue to shift towards open source based implementation approaches as well as distribution and go to market and everything else. And that'll probably continue for the next decade or so. What we think is going to happen after that though, is the application layer will start to shift towards open source models. And so we, we sort of codify that as the sort of SaaS, quote unquote SaaS or line of business software as a service category. So things like Workday and Salesforce, um, Concur, like all of those line of business, you know, ERP, CRM, HCM, you know, three-letter acronyms for application-level software and companies will also start to shift towards open source. I don't think that's going to happen really on mass in a meaningful way until we have at least five to 10 times more software engineers producing open source software on earth relative to what we have now, which is like, you know, 20 to 30 million, maybe depending on how much we trust the GitHub data to be representative of that number, which I think is probably accurate. So let's say 20 to 30 million software engineers today, 10 X that's 300 million. I'd say we need at least 10 X that. So get to around 300 million to start to see sufficient empathy concentrate in the software creation process globally such that software engineers can actually implement line of business enterprise application functionality with a high degree of precision and functional empathy to actually replace the current approach, which is that you have product managers or business people come up with a great application idea and they go and start a SaaS company. If you just look at the slew of SaaS companies today, most of them were not started by software engineers and most of them were started by product people. And there's a reason for that. That's, I think, 
a huge category, and that's maybe a, another trillion dollar category, uh, SaaS line of business applications that will shift to open source, probably take at least seven to 10 years for that to really shift heavily over. Yeah. I think to answer your initial question, though, what gets eaten the last, at least as far as I can see and as far out as I can see, you know, being very speculative here, but I think some of this is potentially grounded in, in you know, in certain areas, consumer applications sort of could potentially come next after that, which is like all the things that normal everyday people use on a daily basis to operate and run their lives. I mean, if you open up your iPhone or your Android device and you click through all those different icons and all the different um, consumer applications that we that we use, many of them are 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 billion dollar companies. They're proprietary software companies. I think eventually those also shift to open source based distribution models. I mean, we have, interestingly, we have one example in the SaaS category of a very high growth and exciting company alternative to a proprietary model, which is Mattermost. Mattermost is an open source based Slack, and it's a very compelling, exciting project and company. And, you know, this is just an early sign of what is essentially a new kind of emerging category of line of business enterprise SaaS, which is this communications real time, you know, sort of email alternative. So I've got, I've got Mattermost coming on the show at some point in the near future. I'm looking forward to that. But this is an open source Slack alternative. Why does that work? Why is that a viable business? I think what actually matters, and it kind of goes back almost to your comment about Uber's primary value being concentrated in their network and in their data, which I agree with. Mattermost allows their customers and their users to disaggregate the control point of the data itself, as well as the network around the deployment of Mattermost server server side components and overall you know deployments. So you can take Mattermost, which is, from what I understand, Go, React, and it's fully open source based implementation of something like Slack, but with with lots of you know improvements and their own approach to things. And you can run that on your own server infrastructure. You can control where the data is persisted. You can control how it's persisted. You can control how it's secured and maintained. And you know you can you consume it over an API as well through a cloud service. But it's basically fully open source data path component of the entire application itself. And that's very compelling to a large number of people. In fact, in particular, open source projects, which which is sort of ironic, but you, know, you have large open source communities and ecosystems that have considered moving off of Slack onto Mattermost because they want to control, uh, they want they want to have better access and control over the data that consists of all the communication exchanges between people in those different uh, those different communities and those different instances of of the application. And a lot of other reasons as well. I mean, you can you can sort of you can imagine Slack having. So Slack hasn't really done much in the way of data science applications that have been built on top of Slack, but Slack has a wealth of data that they can mine and and give you layer two services on top of. So right today, Slack is is pretty cheap for the enterprises that want to purchase it, but if they start offering you really, really compelling services that are built on top of your data and they've already got all your data, then you're going to start to realize, oh my God you know, there's nothing I can do but pay Slack for this amazing service that they're now offering me based off of their data advantage. Now, that's not going to show up for a while, but, you know, the companies that are hopping on Mattermost today might 
be seeing that coming. I think that there's space for both models to succeed at a very, very large scale. I don't tend to, to look at this as an either or. I think it's more of an abundance sort of philosophy. And you're absolutely right. There's there's a huge data advantage that Slack has, but there's also a huge open extensibility and kind of giving control back to the user sort of advantage that Mattermost has in terms of an open source approach for how the application itself is implemented, as well as the the, the sort of data control lifecycle shifted back to the user. What's to stop Mattermost, though, from having lots of concentrated insight and, and data to build generic models on that could serve a large user base by hosting Mattermost and building a cloud service. I mean, they could absolutely do that. I believe they might already be doing that. There's really nothing to stop them from that approach. I think both companies are very early on in their, their life cycle, so we're going to see a ton of innovation on both sides. But again, I'll say a closed approach is viable, an open approach is viable. Both companies can probably be hugely successful. It's, it's like kind of kind of a, you know, no one even really knows how large that sort of market is, but it's, it's probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars over the next decade. We've very quickly gone down something of a rabbit hole into outliers from the typical open source business models that you see. So the typical open source business models that you see are built around infrastructure software companies. And you alluded to this earlier, The your, I think, the Cozy Index. But anyway, this spreadsheet, it's at oss.cash. The, that's the URL, but it links to a Google spreadsheet where you've laid out 38 companies. These are open source business models or companies that are... What's your definition of an open source business model? There is no open source business model. There are companies that implement business models based on open source projects that they fundamentally depend on. That is very subtle and hard for the industry to gain consensus around because it is subtle. Industry consensus typically happens when things are very easily articulated without definition fragmentation. And with open source, we have continuously seen a lack of agreement on almost every concept and framing because this is an extremely subtle and nuanced area of the technology world. Different open source business models or commercial open source software company business models are, for example, open core is a very common business model approach for commercializing an open source project. But it's not a binary sort of, you know, you're open core or you're not. It's sort of how do you implement open core? We've written a little bit about this. There's also support. So support SLA, someone issues a ticket and you're contractually bounded to responding to that ticket within a certain SLA time frame. You have indemnity and, you know, support warranties and so on for the software. Uh, there's training. So people need to be trained on a given piece of software. You charge them for a training program or training and engagement and you you go out and train them on how to use the software there's obviously consulting where you need to go and implement and customize and configure and deploy and install and maintain that software's implementation in, in different environments and pre-production and post-production environments and so on there's hardware-based distribution models which are also sort of business models for commercializing open source software in the spreadsheet that you mentioned, though, Jeff, there's actually a column that sort of roughly lays out the different business models those companies implement or use. And what we've seen is open core is sort of the most common one. Um, there's actually quite a lack of industry agreement, though, on what to call that. I just prefer calling it open core because I think there's decent traces of consistency there. A lot of companies prefer to avoid calling that approach open core because 
in many circles, there's sort of a negative connotation associated with open core. But yeah, there are definitely a, a number of commercial open source software company business models. Right. So the point is, your fund, OSS Capital, you're dedicated to investing in open source companies. But you do acknowledge that this is a hard definition to grapple with what an open source company is. You have the definition of an open source company as if a company heavily relies on or builds upon an open source project as the fundamental building block justifying its core product existence, it is definitionally a commercial OSS company. It's definitionally a commercial open source company. So you have Google that relies on Linux, which, you know, you could say, okay, Google relies fully on Linux. Maybe Google's an open source company. You could say AWS productizes proprietary or they make proprietary versions of open source packages like Kafka or Redis or Elasticsearch. Maybe Amazon is an open source company. Well, there's a wide gradient of things, but you are trying to focus on the things that are leaning towards the open core model. Is that right? Well, you said a couple things there, Jeff. Let's just double click on the definition because I think you're absolutely right. There's almost zero industry agreement or consensus around what it really means to be a commercial open source software company. And this is the main motivation for maintaining the spreadsheet, because we actually have a lot of patterns and similarities in those companies. I'll comment on your Google relies on Linux question first. So Google relying on Linux does not define Google as a commercial open source software company because Google's primary fundamental product's existence is proprietary software implementing very deeply nested complex structures of PageRank and their Google search application and you know something like seven or so other billion user applications which are all proprietary in terms of their core data paths and the core business logic representing and making up those applications. They're absolutely not a commercial open source software company in that sense. You could look at our definition. You could go, well, let's stretch this out and say that if every company depends on an open source programming language to implement their business logic, aren't they then therefore a def uh, definitionally a commercial open source software company because they depend on that open source or those open source programming languages to like build their products i would say definitely not i mean you know every company uses commercial uh, every company uses open source tools and projects to build their software products and that's just sort of the world we live in. What we're trying to sort of parameterize, I guess, or narrowly define is a set of companies in the industry that fundamentally depend on a given open source project or a small number of them. Like in the case of HashiCorp, they depend on, you know, I think five or six, Console, Terraform, uh, Vagrant, Vault, Packer, and, you know, just a very small handful of projects. Uh, to justify their existence. If those projects didn't exist, the company wouldn't exist, the revenue wouldn't exist, the business model wouldn't exist. All of those downstream effects wouldn't exist. The company fundamentally depends on those projects. And that's as crisp as we are today. I think we're going to get a lot more refined in this definition and improve it over time. Because what you, you mentioned earlier is 100% correct. We don't have industry agreement, and it's one of our big goals to try and 
get industry agreement in this area. The Commons Clause came out of Redis Labs, and that uses licensing as a way to litigate against cloud providers. So there's this issue where Redis comes out, Redis Labs is started to be a business based around Redis, and the creators of the open source Redis object storage memory based system can make money. So, you know, there's this open source project, and then the Redis Labs is the company built around the open source project. So it allows the founders of the open source project to work on the technology and also make money. But then AWS steps in and says, well, we're also going to offer Redis as a service. AWS has great distribution channels because people are already running their EC2 instances on AWS, so they might as well run their Redis on AWS as well. This puts Redis Labs in a tough spot because they say, well, you know, not as many people are buying our Redis as we would like because they're just going to AWS, and so Redis Labs comes out with the Commons Clause, or I guess you could say Redis comes out with the Commons Clause. So how viable is the use of licensing as a way to protect the business model of a open source project? So really complex area. And I, instead of commenting directly on Commons Clause, which Heather Meeker from our team actually authored by request of a few folks in the community and the ecosystem, including Redis and, and a few other folks, I'll comment on the more abstract thing, which I tend to think is a more contrarian way of looking at this. And I think that it'll just provide some perspective on my own, my own views here. So I think it is really, really bad and, in fact, completely vain for a company behind an open source project or the creators of the project to try and prevent others, meaning cloud providers or other vendors, from capturing value around that open source project. I think that completely violates the ethos, the overall kind of point and effect of open source software, almost irrespective of the base open source license, whether it's Apache, GPL, MIT, BSD, and so on. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of a secondary deep belief I have, which is that open source software always creates, generates orders of magnitude, more value than any constituent can capture. So if you look at those constituents as being cloud providers, commercial open source software company vendors, or even the creators of the project, none of those constituents can capture a material fraction of the value that open source software creates in the world, which I think is many, many trillions of dollars in value. It's really hard to quantify that, not just economically, but in many other, other, other areas. So I'll go back to cloud providers capturing the value and the sort of overall stance that Redis and now MongoDB and others are actually taking around adopting Commons Clause or something like it, which is to prevent and restrict and, in fact, uh, make it possible to litigate those cloud providers, which I think is just a very, very bad idea. I think the positive side of a cloud provider building a differentiated service and capturing value around an open source project is that this open source project now has distribution into millions of customers that it didn't have before because the cloud provider is elevating it as a first-class service. 
And in addition to that, the cloud provider is potentially contributing back to the open source project and making it better by pushing the scale further across those millions of customers. In fact, we're starting to see this. Um, Amazon, in fact, are actually you know doing more open source contribution than they've ever done in the past. And I think people like Adrian Cockroft and the team have demonstrated a real plan and demonstrate real energy toward contributing things back to Kubernetes and, and many other projects. And they realize that that's necessary. Maybe, maybe they haven't done it at the level of other cloud providers. But I think the point is, even if they didn't, we shouldn't be griping over or giving them stress about that. I think what matters is that the sort of value that open source creates is sort of a pie and that pie continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just this enormous sort of value creation pie. But the different constituents in the ecosystem sort of squabble over, you know, how much of the pie, how much of the of a slice of pie are you capturing relative to my my slice of the pie, and so on, and and it's just really really ridiculous in my in my opinion that the economics are fundamentally different with open source compared to closed source. So open source is just you know it's it's creating it's generating trillions and trillions of dollars of value. If you can go and capture one or two percent of it and build a multi billion dollar platform company or a ten or twenty billion dollar platform company, you should be happy in my opinion. Uh, if you're a cloud provider and you can build a slew of services fundamentally based on open source projects, and those services generate tens of billions in revenue, but then the um, commercial open source software company behind the, those those open source projects maybe perhaps can also generate you know, a few billion in revenue, uh, which I think is absolutely the case, or even close to what the cloud providers can capture and generate in revenue. I think everyone should just be happy. I think everyone should say, great, open source is moving forward. There's more open source in the world. There's more value being delivered back to end users, which is really where the vast majority of the value is being captured and delivered. And that that is just a good thing net-net overall for the world. We should not try and come up with commercial license restrictions around who can capture more value. What we should do is come up with sort of a creative commons or or commercial open source license standardization and frameworks that allow people to reduce a lot of wasted energy in in constructing agreements for commercializing open source software. I think that's that's a more nuanced kind of separate conversation where commons clause could potentially be a good building block or a good stepping stone in that direction. But I personally think that, you know, Redis Labs really, in my opinion, did a poor job representing the intentions and the purpose behind something like Commons Clause, mostly because it's it's actually a net positive for Redis that Redis itself is getting deployed and distributed and scaled in lots of different environments, particular cloud provider environments that only make the software better, only bring it into more end-user environments, and so on. How does that make... I mean, with AWS, they take Redis, they productize it, they don't contribute changes, at least as far as I know. I guess I haven't looked at this specifically. This is what I've heard from, I believe, people that have been writing about this. But AWS doesn't contribute changes back to the software. Uh, They just productize it. They maybe make changes internally, but they don't release those back into the open source world. How does that help the overall Redis community if AWS is just distributing a, a proprietary version of Redis? If AWS is, is exclusively forking Redis 
and distributing a fully proprietary version of Redis and not pushing any of the changes, improvements, bug fixes, and so on back upstream to Redis core. I think that there's a there's a philosophical or maybe a moral argument you could make that they're not being good open source stewards. And I would say there's really good argument for that for sure. However, looking at the fundamentals of open source licensing and the point behind open source software, no one should ever restrict or force or expect cloud providers or frankly, any company for taking an open source project and, and doing that. Why? Because that's just the whole point behind open source. It's free to access, it's free to augment, it's free to modify with varying restrictions depending on the base license, of course. But I'll actually cite, and I've cited this a few times now, and I think it's really, really brilliant comment and 100% accurate, and I agree with it fully, a tweet from Doug Cutting, who's the creator of Apache Lucene and Apache Hadoop, uh, two open source projects that actually created several multi-billion dollar companies, Cladera, Hortonworks, MapR, Elastic, and I believe a few others. And Doug's tweet is paraphrased as basically saying, it is insanity to expect a cloud provider, or let's say this is my paraphrase point, any company that is capturing value around an open source project to contribute proportionally back to the open source project relative to the benefit of the value that they, they capture. It's insanity because this just sort of violates the whole point behind open source, which is you put it out there and you want to create value in the world. If you want to capture value around that, there's a lot of different options, a lot of approaches, and you have to work hard for that and you have to build differentiated user experiences and earn those customers. But you shouldn't force other people just because they're doing a good job capturing value. That's my take on it. Yeah. It does seem in some ways like a question of of norms and well okay so maybe aws is not contributing back to redis their core bug fixes that they should be contributing back you know according to some certain set of norms and you know maybe we can kind of say aws you know that's it's a that's a point against you in in the future. And, you know, to, to to what degree it matters that we're keeping score of, of how we're you know rating AWS's uh, good graces. We can say okay, that's a point against you. I think what you're saying, you see, you're intuiting something also that by distributing Redis further, even though it's in a proprietary form, even though they don't give back to the Redis. Uh, open source repository, there is something about the fact that they are just distributing Redis that is good for the Redis community. And I think that intuition is is kind of correct, because even if I'm just using AWS Redis at my company, and then I, I go and start a startup later on, I'm going to think of Redis as a tool in my toolbox, and I'm going to go and use Redis later on, and maybe I use AWS Redis again, but maybe not. Maybe I use Redis Labs Redis. And there's also two ways of looking at the openness dynamic. There's wire protocol, query engine, API client-side compatibility sort of openness and standardization. And then there's like the sort of data path part of it. If Amazon is forking Redis and changing a lot of the core runtime parts about how the Redis memory caching side of things works or key value or the core database itself and and yet the interface into using the hosted Redis offering is the identical experience and protocol and, and client tooling and so on that you would use for upstream Redis. That is absolutely going to benefit, like you say, skills reuse, knowledge propagation, and the overall 
continued adoption of Redis itself in the industry, irrespective of how it is hosted and commercialized in different platforms. So you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. And there's actually an interesting conversation I had with Kelsey Hightower about this, where as long as you actually have open interfaces or open kind of endpoint access standardization or client-side standardization, you, for particularly for data services, you really don't need to worry about the core data path runtime component of things. I actually kind of disagree with that. I think the whole, the whole stack should be open source and there's ways to commercialize and, and build certain proprietary tooling where, where you can actually license software without needing to sacrifice openness on either end of either the interface boundary or the data path boundary, but that's a much deeper conversation. But yeah, to your point, yeah, there's two there's two sides to the openness there. You helped start the KubeCon, Cloud Native Con series of conferences, and you've been involved in the Kubernetes world for a long time. What kinds of business models are enabled because of the proliferation of Kubernetes? Oh, that's an interesting question. I never really thought of that before. Business models because of new business models because of Kubernetes. I'm not sure new business models have emerged because of Kubernetes. I think Kubernetes has just allowed for better distributed systems to be built. And it is sort of like democratized. Brendan Birds likes to talk about how it's kind of democratized distributed systems knowledge, which I think is absolutely true. It's also just encouraged a higher quality of kind of infrastructure for large or small web services and applications running running on the internet. I don't know if it's particularly tied to business models that could be enabled. I have to think about that a little bit more. We talked about this a little bit at KubeCon, but there is very little overlap between the Kubernetes community and the cryptocurrency community. And I find this curious because these are two giant distributed systems communities. Kubernetes can be used to run private, trusted clusters of compute nodes. Blockchains can be used to run open, trustless networks. And there's a gradient of trust that can exist between these two types of distributed systems, the private networks and the open public blockchain networks. So it seems like these two communities should be cross-pollinating, why are they so disjoint? That's a really, really, really great question and something I've thought a lot about. I'm glad glad you've asked this. So, yeah, I think that there's very little collaboration between the what I'll call the distributed systems community and the decentralized systems community, where the distributed systems community consists of people sort of basing their, their knowledge and best practices kind of around hard, well-understood computer science principles like Paxos-oriented consensus algorithms and sharding and replication and fault-tolerant computing and obviously all of the things that, that we see Kubernetes based on, sort of leader election, leader follower kind of architectures, I think state reconciliation, state loops, control theory. So, and then the decentralized systems community is sort of being based on like everything must be peer to peer. You know, we'll just basically use variations of Merkle trees and you know, implement new kinds of consensus algorithms across decentralized networks where, you know, decentralized networks can be defined also in a kind of you know, maybe quantitatively loose way. The best post I think that 
exists around quantifying a sort of spectrum of whether a system is truly decentralized or not is one by Balaji Srinivasan, who's the current CTO of Coinbase. It's a post he did with, I believe, one of the core technical folks over at 21, the company Coinbase acquired called um, Quantifying Decentralization. It's a really great post. I've linked to it in the in the blog on the uh, podcast here. I think that both distributed systems and decentralized systems kind of go hand in hand. What I've looked at and observed anyway, and in a lot of these blockchain exchanges and kind of crypto, cryptocurrency startups, as well as just even large token like networks and things, is a lot of them actually run on Kubernetes, <laughs> which is really interesting. So maybe not like inherently a lot of collaboration between those two communities, but interestingly, this whole cryptocurrency blockchain ecosystem uses a lot of distributed systems technology in particular Kubernetes, to build their products and build their networks and their stacks and so on. So I think that eventually we'll start to see a lot more collaboration and a lot more sort of respect for both sides. I'll say one other thing here, though, which is kind of maybe an emergent property of how the decentralized systems community has developed from the emergence of the Bitcoin white paper about uh, nine years ago to now, we started to sort of see people vector into that community driven by economic interests and sort of digital money an antagonistic uh, stance toward our current financial system. Whereas the distributed systems community has been much more grounded around kind of computer science and technology and, you know, building, building more robust software and things like that. Very, very different sort of entry point, philosophical and intellectual entry points in terms of the people that make up those communities. So I think that's probably part of why we've seen a lot of not necessarily polarization, but like a lack of collaboration. Well, it's possible. I'm basically asking the question, Hey, we're at a, Kubernetes conference. Kubernetes is based around computers. Computers require electrical engineering. Where's the electrical engineers? Why aren't there electrical engineers at this conference? Like, eventually, there is some point at which there is not enough porousness between two communities that, you know, you just don't get as many electrical engineers at a Kubernetes conference. I think that you've asked something that's much more directly correlated, which is, you know, decentralized systems build and run on top of distributed systems. And there are so many similar goals and outcomes that both of those communities are trying to achieve in terms of building very robust, scalable platforms for large, you know, millions of users or, you know, large amounts of data that I think that they should be communicating and collaborating a lot more, and they're not. So, Cryptocurrency protocols are open source. Are you investing in them? I think for OSS Capital, we're really focused on business models and companies that we really understand well. So if you look at the sort of representative list of companies in the commercial open source software company index, companies like Elastic and Red Hat and you know GitHub, GitLab... MuleSoft, MongoDB, Cloudera, Redis Labs, HashiCorp, many of these companies, they tend to be sort of B2B, B2C enterprise software companies, really, at the end of the day. Cryptocurrency protocols are a very different animal and sort of fall outside of our circle of competence, if you will. So we're just really focusing on what we understand really well. Is an open source social network a viable business? I think it could be. I think it could be. It depends on how you define social network. And in fact, our first investment that we made, and we've actually already announced this, uh, the team announced their round on the 1st of October, actually, which is just a few weeks ago. Uh, there's a company in, um, in New York, but they're also a distributed team. It's called the Dev Community, Dev.2. 
And they're the folks behind the Practical Dev on Twitter, which is like a really, really awesome Twitter handle. I'm sure a lot of your followers and listeners know it well. And they actually sort of looked at all the activity and, and the engagement they got from the Practical Dev handle on Twitter and, and, and all of the knowledge and content and engagement there. And they sort of felt that building a social network around that would make a lot of sense. And so they, they built Dev.2 and actually open sourced the uh, pull request workflow for generating content on the site. And it's sort of an open source based social network. It's very, very exciting. Lots of really interesting activity around the project as well as the community itself. So if that's any indication, I think, you know, you can definitely say that there's a lot of potential for large scale social networks being, being, being built fundamentally on core open source based distribution model. I agree with you. I've had Ben on the show several times. I really like Ben. I like the practical dev. I think he's going to have an interesting time figuring out how to do monetization because the code base is open source. The The open source idea of it is, is I think, one of the, the great appeals of it. You know, that's the whole OSS capital, like, you know, you're, you're putting money into a, an open source project. But the thing is, that if you have, if you put like if Facebook were open source, people would see all the places where, oh, there's like advertising and tracking. And it's like, that's, I don't want that in my code. So if you have an open source community, if you monetize by advertising, the open source people might say, oh, there's your ad insertion code. I don't want that in my community. So is there some problem here where if the users see the injection of monetization-related code, they will balk at it? Or do you think that users are sophisticated enough to say, that's okay, I'm okay with that? I think the latter. I think the latter. But it's a really delicate balancing act, and you have to be super careful with earning, maintaining, and, in fact, growing trust with your community and with the people who have made a given open source project successful as well as contribute to a product or sort of an application user experience based on that open source project. And I think Ben Ben and team are super, super empathetic and sensitive to the trust that they've earned and the trust that they're continuing to, to grow in their community. So there's definitely a lot, lots of approaches and, and different, different ways that commercialization could play out there. But I think if you look at how, like, for example, GitLab has been really transparent about the approaches for commercialization and sort of their open and closed kind of dynamic, what aspects are closed source, what aspects are open, and the sort of open core model, being very transparent about that, being sort of direct and clear and detailed about all those features down to, you know, roadmap level visibility. I think end users and consumers of those services ultimately realize businesses have to be built, people have to be paid. And that dynamic over time, is just something that emerges over running communities really well and earning high levels of trust. I think what he should do is you just make it like, think of it like a newspaper. It's like an open source newspaper site where you can pay to opt out of advertising and tracking if you want. But if you don't pay, you have the alternative of using it like any other media site. I go to BuzzFeed all the time. I know BuzzFeed's tracking me and serving me, you know, ads and and I'm okay with it. I make that bargain and even if BuzzFeed were open source, I wouldn't talk trash about them. I would just say, "Yeah, that's that's the the bargain I've made." So I think that I find that the Patreon model 
the subscription model, that seems to be like a, a less explored side of things. Do you think the Patreon model for open source, do you think that could be a, a venture scale return business model in the future? Do you think there would be a model of just people that support something like, a, like an open source community? You know, last I checked, Patreon themselves, which doesn't directly answer your question, but Patreon, the company, has raised a little over $100 million in venture capital across uh, Series A, B, and C. I think that there's really interesting innovation in the business model side of sort of a digital kind of tip jar approach to subsidizing energy and time spent on various projects, many of which are open source projects on Patreon. I'm I'm actually a Patreon to a few open source projects on, on Patreon where you could potentially build something venture scale returnable. I'm just not as clear about how something like Patreon explicitly applied to open source could what that could look like but i think it's possible i don't have a strong enough opinion there fair enough that's far flung so if you're a venture capitalist venture capital can be highly competitive if you want to have an edge you need to differentiate on some axis you need to differentiate on maybe the capital the amount of capital you give the value-added services you give maybe it's your brand recognition maybe it's a set of LPs that can move and shake things in your favor if you're, you know, if you're a company that gets pulled into the wing of a of a venture capital brand, what is your differentiator when companies are talking to you and they're trying to raise money from you or you're trying to convince them to go with OSS Capital, what are your differentiators? This is a really great question, and I'm always excited to answer this question. And I will be for many years to come, because I think we have something really unique and truly differentiated. There's two levels of value add and sort of value proposition to our founders and the portfolio companies that we serve, as well as new founders that are evaluating us as a potential partner. And those two things are as follows. So we have a full-time firm and partnership where it consists of a few different folks, obviously myself, venture partners. We have portfolio partners, which is sort of a new construction. And we're all deep open source experts. That's all we do. In fact, that's all we've done really for many, many years. It's like sort of decades of experience across the partnership in different areas in, in engineering and legal and finance and community development. And we've been part of contributing to some of the largest, most successful open source projects in the world. In terms of the overall secondary extended network that we have, which is a sort of second layer of the value proposition, we have a network of the founders of the largest, most successful commercial open source software companies of the last decade. Many, if not most, of the companies in the index that we talked about earlier, this uh, commercial open source software company index. And the value that we can provide to open source founders, commercial open source software company founders, is that we can sort of contextually provide uh, the value and the insight and the wisdom and the experience from the large kind of commercial open source company founders of the last decade, which are also oftentimes engineers and project creators, to the next generation of commercial open source company founders. Because, you know, we have this network, which consists of an incentive structure. Many of those individuals are direct supporters and limited partners in our firm, as well as uh, just overall explicitly aligned with our our model. We we only support, we only invest uh, in commercial open source software companies. So I think those two things are really 
where we concentrate our value proposition. And I'd say one final abstract thing, as a firm, we are really razor focused. I mean, the, all we do is investing in commercial open source software companies. We don't really have a sort of a generic services arm. We're not claiming to provide any sort of generic um, business experience or product value, value proposition, or any, any sort of vertical specific thing. We're specifically saying generically, we will only support and invest in commercial open source software companies. And we have a network of founders of the last generation of these commercial open source software companies who have created tens of thousands of jobs, 100 billion plus in, in value, raised upwards of 10 billion in venture capital, and many other things. We hope that structure can add a lot of value to the founders who decide to work with us. Last question. Do you have any open source product ideas or business models that you would like to see people approach you with or that you would like to see people building? We've actually thought about a few things. I don't think that we're very opinionated or try and sort of encourage very specific companies to get built. I mean, it's a huge undertaking and extremely risky to go and start a company in a contrived way. But this is just a request for startups. It's not a contrivance. I would say I have to think about that one for a bit and I'll get back to you. Yeah, we have some really amazing incredible people that we talk with constantly. And there's, you know, hundreds of folks who've engaged and reached out from our announcer early in the, in the month. And we're super honored and excited by that. And I think we're just really excited to see more business model innovation. I've said this a few times in other interviews and other ven venues. I think we're going to continue to support that. There needs to be a lot of innovation around how value is captured with open source software. And we're super supportive of awesome ideas that help move that forward. Joseph Jacks, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Wow.